Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. happening with the temperatures. Well, it's 68 degrees in Norfolk. If you go all the way back to Roanoke, it's 10 degrees cooler than that and 44 in Beckley. A cold front is just about splitting the state at this hour. As that cold front continues to shove east, so do the showers. Here's the radar. That's the voice thousands of people in southwest Virginia learned they could trust. Showers do move in an easterly direction. Some of them were very heavy and as a matter of fact, at times today, that voice and the mustache that came with it were constants in a constantly changing world. In an easterly, southeasterly direction and pretty much has moved out of the Roanoke area altogether, although there is a line of showers from Harrisonburg all the way down to Roanoke. He is synonymous with WDVJ7, your hometown station. And for 40 years, it's been a household name. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm Robin Reed. He served his community, built a family, and a reputation, one rooted in enthusiasm, trust, and respect for his community. Peel was 74, Amherst uh, a little over six-tenths of an inch, Danville right out a half an inch, Pulaski just got some sprinkles. This and soon, he'll greet viewers on air for the last time. In total, it's been wonderful. In this episode of Hometown Stories, a one-on-one with the treasured, mustachioed professor, Robin Reed. When I first started working at WDBJ7, two things happened with great frequency. As soon as people learned where I worked, they sang me this jingle. WDBJ7. And then they asked me about Robin Reed. Robin's career has spanned 40 plus years and he has dedicated every one of them to the service of his community. Most notably by being exactly the kind of guy viewers think he is. Now for that long awaited weekend forecast, here's what it's looking like. Some rain showers. And as retirement approaches, Robin is soaking it all in. Are you ready, Robin? I, no, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> Robin graciously agreed to sit down with me in our WDBJ7 studios in between newscasts. How are you feeling right now? It's interesting. Um, I am still looking forward to retiring, and I knew that it would be kind of complicated because we're near the holiday season, but it really seems like time has really been compressed, and I don't think I've had a chance to breathe and really... Um, take into account what's happening because people have been so gracious and kind with their words and their actions. So I kind of look forward to when everything's done in December, sitting back and saying, wow, what a, what a remarkable time. 
This remarkable time began for Robin in the 70s when he was still in high school. Do you recall the very first time you experienced your first hand at broadcasting back then? Oh, like it was yesterday. It's 1972, and a teenage Robin Reed is living in Australia. His family lived around the world, so life changed often and fast for Robin and his siblings. Baseball was his first love. His junior year of high school, he's working at a sporting goods store, dreaming about pro baseball. And one day, his boss takes him to Radio 8HA in Alice Springs, a town in Australia's Northern Territory. You're traveling in a foreign country. You have a limited amount of friends and uh, people you can associate with. And so each new experience, whether it was the part-time job, whether it was the meeting Aborigines for the first time, everything was new. So when my boss at my part-time afternoon job said, let's go to the radio station, it was like, oh, I listen to that every morning because there wasn't much television in Australia. But when I walked into that single wide trailer, cigarette smoke and, and noise and all this cacophony of sound, and watch this little man behind this electronic board make this three-ring circus go, I was just absolutely enthralled with it. But the whole mystery and magic of radio never left me from that time, and I, I, I can distinctly recall almost every part of it. And then when they asked me to participate in some sports shows, I don't think I even had time to be nervous. It was just like, okay, let's go. But at that point, Robin was still focused on baseball and making a career out of playing the game. Sure, anybody that was born in 1955, that's the first place they go, you know, want to play baseball, want to play baseball. Was doing okay, um, was, was on a track. Uh, I was scouted by the Texas Rangers, played a lot in summer leagues and stuff. So yeah, I was on that track. And then college came along. That, that strange collision of athletics and academics. I live in awe of people that can do both. I am not that person. So with a little bit of um, prodding from my mother, uh, the decision was made to drop the athletics and do the academics, which of course was a, a great decision. But, you know, at the time, walking away from a sport that you love so dearly was not easy. Robin graduated from James Madison High School and then attended James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, where he studied communication arts. The year he graduated, 1978, he stayed close by, landing a gig at WHSV-TV as the station's sports director. Back on the right track. Back on the right track, yeah. Not that Virginia slipped off of it, but JMU had for a moment. Back in the groove was the way Lou Campanelli put it last night. On Robin's very first day on the job, he met someone who would change his life forever. When I walked through the front door, she was sitting there. Wow. This is going to be a good place to work. Teresa greeted him with a smile, and in a short while, she became Mrs. Reed, and the rest is history. She was actually in the traffic department, so she was in charge of watching commercial flow and making sure the logs got to where they needed to, and she had a really, really good job. Well, once I was hired, uh, the policy of the station was that uh, married couples couldn't work in the same location, so she went on to banking. And uh, she was very good at her job, too. So we both had careers. Um, we were both very busy and absolutely opposite, polar opposite schedules. She worked in the morning. I worked at night. We sort of said hi on the way through and, and just kept going. They kept going. 
Until one very fateful broadcast in 1982. Robin is in the studio with anchor Steve Arnold, and the woman scheduled to do the weather forecast that day couldn't make it into work. And I said, well, who's going to do weather? And he said, well, I'm not going to do it. And I said, I don't know how to do it. And he once again reiterated that he wasn't going to do it. So off to commercial break and on to the uh, weather segment, I'm standing at the weather map. Totally unprepared for this. Because I had traveled quite a bit, I was a pretty good geography guy. And so I could name at least five states. So using that as my skill set, I, I, I touched the map at these five states, told the audience what they were going to see there, um, and then signed off. As fate would have it, someone very important happened to be watching that very broadcast. A popular weatherman at WDBJ7 and part-time soap salesman was traveling through Harrisonburg. And as the story goes, he watched the show and made a call back to Roanoke. And he spoke to the news director, Jim Shaver, and said something along the lines of, I think I found my replacement because he was trying to retire. And he said, he's not very good, but I think you'll get him cheap. The bar was not set very high at that point. So Robin and Teresa packed up, made the short drive to Roanoke, and Robin began raising the bar. Coming here and doing weather was a real education because we're primarily agricultural. People need good information. Um, at this point, it's a new, new job for me. And so the viewers taught me what was important and what wasn't important. And if you didn't quite hit those marks, they, back in those days, wrote you letters. It took about a week to get to you, but we got the letters. So the training has always been from the audience. And remember, it's 1982. And the, the science of weather and meteorology is just now beginning in television. Up until then, it was personalities, pretty people, funny people, uh, some in clown outfits, whatever it took to entertain the audience because weather was important but not presented that way. And so I was sitting right on the cusp of what was going to change over the next 40 years, and it was a remarkable ride. At that time, as a meteorologist, where were you getting information about what was going to be forecast. The, the core go-to place was the National Weather Service. So in Harrisonburg, the closest office to us was in Washington, D.C. We went up there one day and introduced ourselves to them and said, look, we have no equipment. We have a um, shag carpet rug map with um, felt things that we stick up. We hope to graduate to plexiglass sometime soon, but right now, this is our map. And if you guys don't tell us where to put these things on the map, we, we actually don't know. Because the only other source back in those days might have been a newspaper. And so we would call the Weather Service in Washington twice a day. And they would tell us where to put the H and the L and the sun and the clouds. And we would stick it on there with our little felt things and stand up there and try very hard not to bump it. Because if you did, they might come tumbling down. So honest to goodness, that's how it started. Obviously, and thankfully, technology got better. Robin was on the forefront of the change, pushing for bigger and better for his staff and for the viewers. It started with a $5,000 TRS-80 from Radio Shack, which is about 13 grand in today's dollars. So if you were born after 1980, I did a little research for you. The TRS-80 is what was called a microcomputer, and it was one of the earliest available for the mass market. Boxy, clunky, 80s to the core, it looks exactly like you're picturing. 
for remembering. Lovingly called the Trash 80 in those days. And it had data that came into it. It had numbers. Ooh, well this is kind of nice, you know. Didn't have maps yet, just, just numbers. The weather satellites continued to be launched. More technology, more computers, faster computers. And over time, it became what it is today, which is state-of-the-art communications and scientific data. As the technology grew, so did Robin's skills. His ultimate test came on Election Day, 1985. Here is a special report from News 7. Good afternoon. I'm Keith Humphrey reporting for News 7 this afternoon. The flooding in the Roanoke Valley has taken on major proportions, nearing disaster proportions in some areas. Roads are blocked throughout the valley. We have taken some pictures throughout various parts of our coverage area, and we'd like to share some... A tropical system making its way through Roanoke dumped historic amounts of water, six inches in one morning. And it didn't stop. Creeks clogged and rivers swelled to near-biblical proportions. Robin remembers it vividly. And the Roanoke River runs right through downtown Roanoke and generally is a foot deep, maybe two on a big day. At the end of the day, it was 25, six, seven feet deep. Well, there was no place to go. Um, we were working around the clock trying to stay on the air, having difficulty doing that because all the electricity went out in downtown Roanoke. And um, so we, for a while, couldn't even broadcast, but we were still working the whole time, content gathering. 19 and a half feet, and local residents will know that 10 feet is the flood stage for the Roanoke River, so it's almost 10 feet above flood stage, and I can report to you, having driven around that area, that it is impassable. At work, Robin gets a phone call from Teresa, who's at home with their son Patrick and currently pregnant with their son Daniel. Their home is flooding badly. She's being rescued in somebody's boat and floated to higher ground for safety. And there wasn't much time for emotion, but there was a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the next two weeks because there was no electricity. The water was still standing in the house. We were staying with then the um, assistant news director, executive producer at their place. And, and so when we were all done and we took a deep breath, we said, wow, number one, we have to move to a higher place. Number two, this might be a good time to go find that other job because it had been three years. Uh, number three, we were exhausted and cold because it was the winter. What happened next is why Robin is still here. Robin wasn't the only person who lost their home and their belongings that day. He jokes he's got a washing machine at the bottom of Smith Mountain Lake. The flood was a disaster, no doubt, and Robin's young family was in the thick of it. And it was hard. We were feeling kind of low. Uh, we didn't have any money. We were using it to try to replace things. So Teresa built a Christmas tree out of uh, salt dough ornaments and popcorn. Um, we had a kerosene heater. We muddled through. And at the lowest point, a knock came on the door. And it was a co-worker from Channel 7, Jack G. And he said, how are you guys doing? We said, well, we're making it. We're, we're good, you know. Um, he said, well, I'd like to give you this. And he handed me a pink envelope. What comes in pink envelopes? I thought, oh, man, I've been fired. This is not how I hoped it would turn out. And he leaves. Walked inside, opened up the envelope, and it's quite a bit of money. They had taken a, 
a gathering of funds at the station and everybody had contributed. There were about six people at the station who either lost everything or were in danger. And so this outreach of kindness and support changed my life. And then as the weeks went on, people would stop me and have conversations with me and continue to reflect that they were glad I was here and that we had talked them through the flood. And for me, that was the moment that we decided we would stay as long as it was feasible. Feasible gave way to enjoyable. The community leaned on and trusted the man who got them through it. While the flood of 85, as it became known, was historic, there were other weather events that defined the era. Hurricane Hugo, the blizzard of 86, the 2011 tornadoes, and the 2012 derecho, each destructive and humbling in their own rights. But from the flood onward, the community was attached fiercely to the weatherman with the mustache. It was interesting because it was so organic. I think the reason the relationship has become so sweet and fun was they saw you fail in front of them. Some of the forecasts that we did were pretty off the mark. And, you know, it, it inconvenienced people. It cost people money. It was a travel nightmare, whatever it was. And I remember one time I went on the air the next day and I had the art department make me up what looked like a fried eggs. It was a piece of paper and it was drawn for eggs. And I had them put on an elastic thing and I put it on my head and went out and, and did the weather uh, with egg on my face. <laughs> a silly little game. But it, it connected those kinds of uh, things. Once I told everybody that there would be just a dusting of snow and, and eight inches later, boy, did that connect, you know. And it, I didn't have to do anything except just smile. And I think as long as you smiled and you admitted your mistakes and then said, you, you don't have to say I'm sorry, it's, it's weather, it's nature. But as long as you could say that was a terrible forecast. They then felt connected to you in a way that lasted for years. It wasn't just the viewers Robin was making a connection with. It was their children as well. But does that give you any ideas about how neat nature is and how powerful it is and how it would be really Robin found himself in countless local classrooms throughout the region, teaching students lessons in weather and science for Robin Reed's weather school program. The man from the TV came to life in a very real way. Even now when people greet me and they'll say things like, you came to my class when I was in kindergarten and now I have kids and you came to their class and it's like, wow, you know, that's, that's a long time. But Robin's connection stretched far beyond the reaches of WDBJ7's broadcasts. He became a part of the American Meteorological Association, earning its seal of approval. In fact, he was just the sixth meteorologist in the entire country to earn the Certified Broadcast Meteorologist Distinction, which is now an industry standard. He took a leadership role with the Central Virginia chapter of the AMS, led conference presentations, and even helped make the test for the new CBM seal. And in 1997, Robin was one of the 110 meteorologists invited to the White House by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for a summit on global warming data with then-President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore. Robin's place in the community rose to local celebrity status. 
Ralph Barrier of the Roanoke Times wrote in his 2012 profile on Robin, quote, he quickly became a local celebrity in a city where television anchors surpass even politicians as the most recognizable public figures. You'd see him at parades, school events, chili cook-offs, you name it, Robin was invited. And his image and likeness used to promote the hometown station brand. That Robin's got him a computer, Vernon. The man is wired for weather. Didn't you hear Robin say that it was going to rain any second? We are talking pinpoint, Vernon. Next time, talk to your old buddy Ernest first, know what I mean? And who could forget the polls? All right, if you ever mention this to Robin or Teresa, they're quick to brush it off or chuckle. Robin's going to shake his head. You're probably going to get an eye roll out of Teresa. But for years, Robin was voted the Roanoke Magazine's best local TV personality and best male sex symbol. Hot Springs up at Ingalls Field. It is cold, 28 right now. It's 37 in Blacksburg. It's 46 degrees in Danville under mainly cloudy skies. But you know what? Those clouds are starting to thin out a little bit and the computer models are indicating. As Robin was learning, he was also mentoring. In 40 years, dozens and dozens of people were tutored under Robin's watch. Their skills expanded, horizons broadened, and opportunities awakened. Many of Robin's trainees have continued on to long-fulfilling careers in the industry. WDBJ7's current chief meteorologist, Brent Watts, was among those under Robin's tutelage. It has been so warm today. Beautiful sunrise. You had to get out there early in the day before things started to heat up. And today, honestly, is just the beginning of what's going to be a hot stretch of weather. The world of weather was changing pretty dramatically throughout this time frame. So when people watched television weather and became enamored with it and wanted to join that process, they brought all the energy and all the desire to be there. And all I really had to do was keep them on the tracks, advise them when I saw something that might not play well or, you know, could be something simple, you know. Um, that tie, for example, may not play well on TV, to this, this sort of silly things. But mostly they were so highly motivated that really it was just a matter of keeping them going and then watching them bloom his teaching opportunities expanded, too. In addition to elementary school cafeterias and classrooms, Robin found himself in front of the industry's next young leaders. From 1988 to 2002, Robin was a lecturer at Virginia Western Community College teaching Introduction to Meteorology. In 2013, he was made adjunct instructor at Virginia Tech's Department of Communications, and he continues to work there as professor of practice today. So, as you know, we're working on our third project. It's Tuesday as we chat, and a week from today, end of day, right, David? You're going to have. I know it probably depends on the day, but for you, what is the feeling that you get when you walk into the classroom to start your class? What's today going to bring? At the college level, they have four or five other classes. They have four or five other responsibilities. I'm not the only thing in their life that day. So what I've learned, the difference between going into a fourth grade classroom and a senior in college is, the fourth graders are inquisitive and they wanna know and they want autographs and they want stuff like that in college they really want to know if you can connect with them one by one by one. So in a class of 20, you have 20 friends you have to make. You're not always successful. 
Some people don't like what you bring, but it's complicated, it's rich. When I go to the university each day, I don't know what it's going to turn out like. And sometimes I don't find out till years later what it turned out like. But when they give you credit down the road for something that they're accomplishing, again, on their own, that's very gratifying. Robin saw many changes in the WDBJ7 newsroom in 40 years. New technology, new faces, a rotation of characters and callings that made each day unique. When you walked into the studio every day, whether you were coming to do weather or when you made your transition to the anchor desk, have you operated with a mantra? You know, there's something about lights and colors and energy. And every day when I walked in, the computers were spinning, the lights were on, people were talking excitedly about whatever was about to happen next. You walk into most newsrooms, even today, there's there's a camaraderie and a buzz that's going on. And you just feel happy that you're there. And you're anxious to find out what's, you know, what's going on. So I've always been grateful for that. The, the imagination that goes into the job, the creativity. Being around really smart people is very exciting. And they keep coming and they keep coming. And I'll miss that a lot. That's probably the thing I'll miss the most is being around really smart people and learning from them every day. Best days on the job, worst days on the job. Um, doctors used to tell me that their worst days were the days when ice arrived here because people fell. And so the emergency room would be filled with people with broken arms, legs, and whatever. And once I learned that, I remembered to take icing as a very, very serious threat to people's health. If we didn't do a good job telling the people in our higher locations in, in a TV market that goes from sea level to 3,000 feet, I felt bad about that. that. I took that one personally. We had a series of weather watchers that we had join us as a hobby. And we would do newspaper articles about them in their hometowns. And they sort of became miniature celebrities. And one of our weather watchers um, was checking the level of the creeks and rivers near his house so he could report to us how the water was rising. And unfortunately, his son fell in the creek and he went in after him and they both drowned. Um, we felt responsible for that from an emotional standpoint. It certainly wasn't, realistically, that wasn't our fault. But boy, did that hit hard that we'd, somebody who loved weather as much as we did and perished in the observation of it. Um, that one stuck around a really long time. Um, there were other things that happened. There were bad days. Um, there were good days. But in total, the good days were the little things. I think I would say every hug you get from a kindergartner, every time a parent comes up and tells you that their son is now studying something because they were inspired by you, um, anytime, it's the small things. And it's a compilation of them that feel good over time. The big ones come and hit you in the nose and the stomach and, and then make you feel sick. But the good ones last a really long time, but they come in small doses. In between all of this, Robin was also a husband and a dad and a Boy Scout troop leader. It wouldn't be unusual for me to get up at 7 to just see the kids go off in the school bus and then be at a school myself speaking to elementary kids maybe at 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning and then 
a luncheon somewhere, maybe a Rotary Club or a, some civic organization, back to the TV station at about 2 or 2.30, and then, you know, you're working till midnight or later. How did you manage being a husband, being a father, being the community's weatherman, being a colleague? I was married to the best planner, executor, designer, cook, babysitter, wife ever. There's no way you can pull off that without a team. And she and I have been a team. And I was fully aware that if we were going to have a family, raise kids, and do this as an occupation, it would have to be a total buy-in. She did. She left her career in banking. She became the PTA mom. She became the, the neighborhood house where kids would come after school. And so with time, that teamwork made it happen. The one standing rule we had in the house that could not be broken is dinner. No matter what the kids thought they had planned, and no matter what I thought I had planned, dinner was almost sacred in the house. We had to come together at dinner to uh, sort of decompress and spill out what happened that day. And so our dinner conversations tended to be pretty, pretty rich. Eventually, his sons, Daniel and Patrick, grew up, moved out, began starting families of their own. These days, time outside of work is spent on their Botetot farm learning to grow new vegetables, making gourmet dinners, or teaching his eldest grandson how to ride the tractor. How did becoming grandpa change your perspective on not only your career, but your life? Oh, all the things I'm going to say have been said before, but you don't know it until you experience it. But everything becomes richer. Little events become richer. Tears flow more easily. When Karsten arrived, Daniel came around the corner with tears in his eyes and he said, Dad, you've got to come see this. And it was just like, pow, your heart just explodes and, and you get to meet your grandson. When baby Asa was born, Patrick's uh, child with his wife Beth, they were not aware that uh, he, he would be a little bit of a complication. Um, he was born with Down syndrome, which put him in the NICU for a couple of weeks. The love was just incredible. Little baby's got tubes coming out of most places, but it was like, oh my gosh, he's here. And now he um, lives in Christiansburg with his family and we get to see him by photograph more often than anything else, almost a daily pick. And I got one yesterday, and I sat in the car and cried because he's so beautiful. So your, all of your priorities don't change, but they become more magnified. I'm here for this purpose. I'm here to be a, a grandfather. I'm here to be a husband. I'm here to be a dad. I've given a lot to my career, given a lot to the community, lovingly, and wanted to be there. I think... This is what retirement must look like when you can reset your priorities, but they're the ones you want to do, and I'm looking forward to it. Any regrets? In total, none. Who gets to stick around long enough to watch an entire generation of kids come and go and become who they were going to become? And you had a small moment in their life. You had a chance to be with them. I've said a number of times the community has been so kind to me. How could you have any regrets? So... In total, it's been wonderful.
Robin has been honored by his peers many times over, including Citizen of the Year by Roanoke's branch of the NAACP, an Emmy nomination for his coverage of the Glade Spring Tornadoes in 2011, and Virginia Tech's Housing and Residential Life's 2014 favorite faculty member. In 2017, Robin made a big transition. The community's most recognizable weatherman had moved just across the studio to the anchor desk. Hi, Brent, thank you. Today, the State Crime Commission took a deep dive into the problem of driving under the influence. It continues to be a major factor. But two things did not change. <clears throat> 10 seconds. Here we go. Robin kept his mustache, and he kept the viewer's trust. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm Robin Reed. Is there anything about retirement that scares you? Well, I wish our 401ks would stabilize just a little bit. And I wish that I understood the uh, social security ads that come on for six months of the year telling me to choose the right plan. But I know that I did everything that I was asked to do. And I know that I followed the rules as best I could. And so I have confidence that whatever happens tomorrow will be the right thing. And that Teresa and I are adaptable enough to whatever's coming up that, that we'll be fine. So I'm just looking forward to it with eyes wide open. Robin says personally, he's most proud of the family he's built with Teresa's tender care. And professionally, he's most proud to have represented WDBJ7 for 40 long, wonderful years. My message to the community is thank you. Thank you for uh, letting me hang around and get to know you and thank you for letting me join your organizations and be in your schools and hug your kids and just be here. It is so gratifying to wake up each day and know that you're welcome. My personal thanks, if I may, to Robin for his time, his mentorship, and his friendship. Enjoy retirement, Robin. Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.